Okay, so welcome back to the UFO Thinker podcast, part of the Colin All Beans Carbon Network. My name's Frank, and let's get cracking with part two of the Ancient Civilizations uh, little mini-series, micro-series, if you will, uh, that we've been doing. This is the second and final part. Um, I do recommend, if you've not heard the first part, go and check that out for for the kind of the context it'll probably make more sense about what we're about to get stuck into and uh, but with all of that said let's get straight into that part two so i think we can see by the story of atlantis really in this research but again these trends suggest our standard view of the age of our civilization and linear growth isn't correct and we can then have a look now, well, we'll see what you think first, Frank, but we can next have a quick look at some of the most specific examples of ancient tech to give people an idea of how it might connect to other things you see. Sounds like a plan, sounds like a plan. One thing that I just remembered to mention as well, um, maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot with this one, but I've been pronouncing it wrong. It's actually Gebekli Tepe and... I've been pronouncing it Gebleki Tepe for some reason for ages. So I just wanted to, there may be people listening to my pod that have heard me mention that and thought, why is he saying it like that? And uh, I just wanted to throw that out there. I know the error of my ways and, and I'm now saying it correctly. Um, Gobekli Tepe. Okay, so I just wanted to quickly correct myself for the record because uh, I, I, I realized the other day I heard somebody saying it out loud. I think most of the time I'd been reading it in articles. Um, and for some reason just got that pronunciation stuck in my head. But there we go. But as you say, I think what a lot of those examples of, um, you know, uh, that you were mentioning there, um, it, what, what, it, what it drives home is that it really is a worldwide thing. It's not just Egypt that's got these kind of ancient sites that are absolutely fascinating. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Machu Picchu, uh, Pumapunko, these kinds of sites, um, you know, absolutely fascinating um you know structures and 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 things like that and and a great way for people to actually check out some some more detail as well are some of the very good recent documentaries and and series and things like that that have come out um there was one of them and i remember you recommending me to watch this a long time ago dave um it's called BAM I believe it was Builders of the Ancient Monuments. That's that's quite a good um, documentary that that goes into a lot of this. Uh, and most uh, most recently, I would say, uh, and certainly infamously, uh, Graham Hancock's most recent uh, Netflix series, uh, Ancient Apocalypse, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. And it was it was it was very clear that he's gone. Uh, he's, he's first of all very clear that he's got a big budget and it's very very well produced and, and beautifully put together series uh, where he basically goes around the world pointing out some of the most interesting sites um you know that that suggest uh some kind of you know uh planetary history altering um you know event that 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 could have happened that wiped out a, a much more advanced civilization than is currently accepted to have existed um and and he goes around the world and, and shoots at all of these sites and and I think puts forward a very compelling case. But it's very clear that as well as having that 
very, very big budget to put this together. He's also veered away from going into too many speculative you know, conclusions as to how this happened and things like that. He's really obviously made a, a, a clear separation between you know, the entertainment stuff that I've talked about. Could it be that da 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 He's not gone that far. He's just gone, look, this is what's really interesting about this site. And then sh- and then shied away from the, could that mean that it was built by, you know, robotic creatures from, you know, Alpha Centauri or whatever? He's, he's not gone down that route. He's just presented the information. And I think it's a, a fantastic series that's really, really worth checking out if anybody's not already seen it. Uh, and he certainly got a lot of pushback from the, as you were mentioning, uh, I think we've both mentioned quite a lot here uh, about the, the the existing stigma and, and kind of uh, a dogma, should I say, and, and uh, gatekeepers within the, the field of archaeology. Um, they absolutely despise Hancock. And um, a, a couple of them have sort of recently come around to certain ideas of his, but um, he certainly got a lot of pushback. There was an article in The Guardian, um, you know, a well-recognised a well uh, recognized, um, UK uh, broadsheet newspaper uh, which was described it as uh, the most dangerous show on Netflix which I think is hilariously over the top you know <laughs> I mean it's it's just it's as if to suggest that people are going to be people are going to be oh, brainwashed yeah. into believing sort of pseudo archaeology or whatever you know and of course that's the the term that, that gets branded on Graham Hancock um, you know, pseudo archaeologist and, and this kind of thing. But at the end of the day, um, he's never even really claimed to be an archaeologist. He's just somebody who's interested in these things and has, has managed to, you know, spend a lot of time, you know, writing essentially, you know, about being a journalist and looking into these things and presenting it to the public and, and hoping to stir up some interest in uh, from the, the archaeological community and, and things to actually to look into into it a bit more and to get some answers, you know, which is, I suppose, again, it's what we all want, isn't it? Uh, and, and anybody who wants um, a very detailed rundown of some of the, the geology of some of these ancient sites and things like that, uh, you might want to check out Randall Carlson as well. Um, <laughs> but as, as, as you sort of alluded to there, Dave, uh, Randall, uh, got to love him. Every, you know, got to love Randall Carlson, but he certainly uh, knows how to go into some detail. And he has like four-hour-long videos about the geology of a certain site and things like that. It's extremely in-depth. Uh, so if you do check out Randall Carlson, be prepared for that. Um, however, I think a really good way to check out um, a, a, sl- a slightly more concise version of Randall Carlson's uh, kind of, you know, areas of, of work is he's done some Joe Rogan episodes, um, uh, the Joe Rogan Experience YouTube channel, uh, now a Spotify podcast uh, exclusively. But um, years and years and years ago, before Joe Rogan was kind of the biggest podcast in the world, he used to have Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson on his shows together. And because obviously there's the two of them, Joe Rogan sort of intervenes when, when you know, a particular area is being discussed, uh, you know, in perhaps too much detail. It's a, it's a really good way of just getting a concise back and forth between uh, Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson with Joe Rogan's input as well. So that, those are definitely worth uh, a watch. I thought it was just worth mentioning a few of those recommendations because uh, obviously we've touched on some of these names and I think those are some great ways to to check out some further work uh, by, by these people, certainly things that I've enjoyed. Um, and again, you know, come to your own conclusions, but I think all of the things that I've just mentioned now give some pretty good background into some of the, uh, some of the ideas around all of this. And of course... 
as I was talking about there, uh, particularly the the Graham Hancock Ancient Apocalypse series, that is a very good rundown of some some examples of this ancient technology uh, that that may have have been used to create these incredible sites. Um, so, what are your thoughts on some of the the most compelling ones, Dave? Yeah, just to very quickly, Hancock I was very conservative in that thing, so he, he, nobody could accuse him of being mass sensationalist, although the archaeologists did. Little thing on archaeology. I mean, basically, archaeology uh, not a very scientific discipline. It's had its it's more like art history, really, it had its roots in the colonial times, all these colonial events in the nineteenth century, constructing these great theories of population movement. So it's since proved to be wrong. But crucially, they don't have a multidisciplinary facet. It's only really recently developed engineers, chemists, geographers, geologists. That really wasn't in the archaeologist lexicon, really. And subsequently, they miss things. They miss things. A rock couldn't have been moved by 100 blokes, you know what I mean, or whatever, you know, with a stick or something. They missed that. They didn't realise that. So it's becoming, it nearly needs to be multidisciplinary, and it is becoming a bit more like that now. So they come to a lot of erroneous conclusions. And like we see in ufology, people get stuck in the dogma and, and aren't open-minded. And I think Max Planck said, oh, is it, uh, I think history moves on at one funeral at a time or something like that, I think it was. Or science, that was it, science moves on one funeral at a time. And then that's probably what's going to happen in archaeology. People will die off and the new breed will do it. Anyway, what I'm going to do now, Frank, just looking at time, I'm going to do a quick... I'm going to try and pick out just some stuff around ancient tech and, tech and some examples. And I just want to uh, pull out what that might mean for UAP tech very quickly. And then we can just look at some recent things that have been discovered just to round it off, if that's fine. So we'll just go through that. And now I'll just go through my list. So I'm sorry if I'm going through this quite quickly, but you should just get a bit of an idea of where we're going with this. So... We can see, as I've alluded to around the world, quite advanced construction techniques using large, well-cut stones. There's three distinct worldwide approaches using these big stones from different times, all very old. We can see metal joints used from South America to Asia, all over the place where they join stones. That's a particular thing. And you might have noticed these nubs sometimes appearing in Egypt, South America, in Russia even. And people don't understand them, but they're like signatures of the particular people who built these massive stones. But the main point is they moved massive stones that they shouldn't have been able to lift with ease. Why didn't they just use bricks? Well, they didn't use the stones. So we've got pyramids all over the world, so I don't want to go into that. There's a lot of evidence of advanced agricultural techniques being used, getting high yields from crops, proper rotational stuff. In very difficult climates. In fact, I think Darwin saw some in Patagonia and couldn't believe these crops were growing at such a high altitude. And one real smoking gun is an ancient man made soil called Terra Preta. It's tens of thousands of years old. It's extremely futile, fertile, futile, fertile, excuse me. And it maintains that fertility almost indefinitely. Found it in South America, but it's all over the place and it's definitely man made. Now, how did they, who made that? And how is it so old? To me, on its own, that's a smoking gun of an older worldwide civilization. Sophisticated water management systems all over the place, in Petra, India, the Balkans, in Russia. And one of the key things is very old piping they've found in, in ancient rock things that are very quite a low, an old depth down, which shows they must be pretty old piping and water movement. A lot of stuff around advanced acoustical knowledge in building, got Malta, the Great Pyramid itself, caves in India, 
They resonate at certain frequencies. You've got whispering galleries where sound moves a very sophisticated knowledge of sound and its manipulation. And there's some links, and I won't have time to go to that, and lifting and vibration and the ability to lift things. So there's a whole sophisticated knowledge around sound, which is something you know a lot about, Frank, I know, uh, which we can maybe do something more specific on in a future episode. But anyway, that was a big thing. A lot of ancient concretes were better than the ones we use today. Potentially be able to melt or use geopolymers to melt stone in some weird ways. You see that in uh, Saxo Warman in South America. These stones apparently melted together in a way we don't quite understand. Big one, the use of mica and other materials uh, in the, uh, is it Te- Teotihuacan, I think. Teotihuacan, Te- 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 anyway. Teotihuacan, that's right. That's terrible. I've murdered that, I think. Anyway. That's the pyramid of the sun and the moon in South. Should have said that in the first place. Shouldn't I? In South America, and uh, that's uses a lot of mica and a lot of other things, and, it's, and that's used for electrical resistance and conductivity. It's got it lined over all the walls across the complex, as if they were shunting electricity all over the complex. Really interesting. The different channels, as I say, there's a lot of u- use of mercury in those channels. So the theory was that was conduction part. That's really, really interesting. A lot of evidence of advanced metalwork, industrial processes at ancient sites. These are often written off as temples by archaeologists, but if you look at them, they're very functional. They've no decoration. They look like there's a process. There's also in Bolivia some ex- some evidence of smelting sites in a very old place, and they look very functional and precise. And and obviously they've just been dismissed. Everything's a temple. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and uh, obviously these things look like they were much more functional. Some of them actually look like circuit boards when they're laid out. Uh, big roads in South America called Sacabees, uh, very high, 20 foot wide, go for 25 miles. Anyway, also, there's also some evidence of quite sophisticated cutting and di- coring and digging tools, machined eggs, digging marks, well cut caverns. Also, evidence of quite expertly dug precision tunnels and caves with ventilation, very sophisticated. And it looks like in some areas, but they're actually. The molecular structure of the stuff's been moved away because there's no sort of waste. There's no waste anywhere where it's gone. So the point, and again, I'm rushing there. There's a lot to all this. But the idea is that, again, they're very sophisticated tools for cutting and manipulating matter and maybe move, being able to disrupt matter to be able to cut very precisely in very hard stone. Loads of accounts of flying crafts in various cultures. Viman is well known in India. Solomon, Solomon apparently had a craft he used to fly around, maybe an old one. But apparently it was rumored to be a relic from another time. Uh, there's also a lot of glyphs around the world. You can see people flying, and glyphs you can only see from the air. So that's another indication they might have had flight as well. Finally, also evidence, not finally, there's a couple more. There's evidence that the Earth was once accurately measured and mapped. There's a lot of ancient measurement scales that actually have the roots and the dimensions of the Earth as well. And following enough, the Great Pyramid is actually a 43-scale model of the Northern Hemisphere. And again, there's a load of detail on that, but very interesting evidence for ancient people. Newell had properly mapped the Earl using sophisticated science and geometry uh, a long time ago. Ancient astronomical systems would imply long-term knowledge. How long were they looking at things for? And also uh, evidence of very imprecise machining, which we may talk about a little bit later in doing various different things and possibly use of laves. And also... Evidence of quarrying with very precise tools. It's quite funny. There's massive blocks 
some of them were left in situ actually, which would imply there was some sort of cataclysm as they were cutting them. But luckily, we've seen how they're doing these are in a Zhangzin quarry in China, Baalbek, Lebanon, massive blocks of stone you can't move, but they're all cut out as if with ease. And they're built in this size of blocks, massive 100 ton, 120 ton blocks. You wouldn't build with those unless you could move them easily. I mean, we could have, we could hardly move them today. Uh, so it's a long list, um, but it's just still with that. It's just a selected snapshot, really. And uh, but it looks like at a very ancient time, humanity possessed this very advanced knowledge of the earth and science, and it put it to practical use. And as I said, there's good evidence that many of these early civilization centers are still underwater. So, what is the link then to UAP or the others' tech? As I say, it seems they had an advanced science, but it was different to ours, and that's maybe why we can't spot it. We rely on force, mechanical advantage, combustion, wide electricity, nuclear energy. But I think we might have missed a few tricks along the way, and we've not discovered some important areas of science. And, but we seem to have retained a vague memory of them in sort of our folk records. There's three areas in particular that are just worth you thinking about. The first one is the electromagnetic nature of matter and how to manipulate this. People seem to know about that. That's electromagnetic and sonic and field manipulation. I think that's lifting stones, flying, anti-grav flight, cutting and digging tools. Also, the ability to draw power from Earth sources, geomagnetic. People think the pyramid had something to do with that as well and electromagnetic from the atmosphere, like the Tesla towers and all the rest of it, and the ability to transmit power wirelessly. This is a quick aside, the obelisk, if you think of the obelisk, there's a lot of uh, speculation that the obelisk itself may have been like an antennae to put up transfer power, and you could use tools within, say, a radius, say, 100-meter radius, 200-meter radius, and that was what the, initial, the actual obelisk originally were used for, and that's just quite you see them in India, you see them all over the place. And you can imagine that a wireless power system. We're thinking, oh, look at those nice little obelisks, aren't they quaint? And actually, there are a whole other tech that we don't realize because it's not in our scientific lexicon, as I say. They might have discovered also, and this is the final one, the relationship between matter and consciousness and the ability to maybe manipulate reality, objects, machinery, control the body, regulate health. There's a lot of evidence around sonic stuff and regulating health and, use, and using the mind. There's certainly a lot of history and myths around that. Telepathy, communication, and remote viewing. Now, I think the old uh, oracles of old were actually remote viewers. I think there's quite a lot of evidence of that, and that's an interesting thing to think about. I'm rushing that bit there, but if you think about those three things, you've got field manipulation, you've got different power sources, and you've got uh, the psi power, you can see that replicated in uh, some of the stuff we see in UAP today. And we might not recognize that science because it's different to ours. What we see as a temple might have been a production facility. Pyramid might have been a flat, uh, power plant, etc. And as I say, we see a lot of those phenomena today in UAP. So, A, does that give us indications of the sort of sciences being used and maybe they're not that more advanced or whatever? And are we more speculative seeing an older version of ourselves? And as I said before, it explains why maybe we haven't advanced much in 300,000 years. We get so far, then we get destroyed again every 12,000 years and we have to start again. So maybe one time we got lucky and uh, the people who fly 
people who went underground, and they're the people we see flying the UAPs today. Again, very speculative, but the main point is that's the some of the some of the examples of tech very quickly, and maybe how it links to the UAP subject. Yeah, definitely, and I think you know again it reminds me of when when uh, I was on the that UFO podcast phone in. I remember one of the things I said were uh, was. It's not as simple as the aliens built the pyramids or, you know, the aliens came down and showed us how to. And, and that's that's a particular line of criticism that these kinds of, um, you know, these these avenues of thinking, you know, get uh, get criticized for is is that you're discrediting our ancestors essentially by saying oh they couldn't have built it so it must have been the aliens but that's exactly what we're not saying isn't it and i suppose that's exactly what you people like you you a lot of graham hancock people throw these kind of accusations at him um but actually it, it actually could be more interesting than that that our ancestors human beings who lived on this planet say i don't know just to put a random figure on it thirty thousand years ago something like that had abilities that we don't have so it's actually quite the opposite of 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 disregarding the achievements of humans who who came before and saying oh it must have been aliens it must have been you know something else maybe it was just humans and that in in a way is kind of more fascinating but the link there is that as as we talked about earlier on we don't have the finished article in terms of knowing everything about the universe, knowing everything that we that we can do with our own consciousness, knowing what we can do with the materials around us and using things like resonance and, and frequency and, and perhaps consciousness mixed in with that. And things like that could have formed the basis of tech, not what we would think as technologies, you know, and, and certainly a lot of ancient cultures around the world have, you know, various versions of people in contact with the spirit world and things like that and knowledge came from those realms and they used certain meditation states and things to to be able to learn um you know lessons and and messages and inspiration from another realm and things like that and that in itself could be a link what other whatever other realm that is that we've basically decided that is taboo to even think about and uh, and and to get in touch with other ancient civilizations perhaps before a cataclysm maybe learned a lot from those realms and you know i think we're only just starting to break down that stigma of of other altered states of consciousness that you arrive at through various different ways and what could be perhaps learned it's fascinating to me that when people have things like DMT experiences, um, they, you know, and, and psilocybin experiences and, and various other um, similar substances, one of the key things is unbelievably complex geometric patterns. You know, everybody reports that, you know, those kinds of things like colors and things like that. But geometric patterns seems to be, um, you know, a real core of, of those types of experiences. And, it's interesting that a lot of the ancient structures, particularly some of the ones that I'm about to delve into in a second, use those exact types of geometric uh, patterns and, and sacred geometry, as, as it's known, um, as, as the basis of what the actual structure is, is built in terms of the dimensions of it, um, which is that a tribute to perhaps things that have been learned in those other states and those other realms, you know, um, who who knows? I mean, these these are the mysteries, but there seems to certainly be a strong connection there. But of course, some of that is quite speculative. Um, but you know that that kind of brings us to 
a bit that that really you know gets my attention because all of these kinds of ideas are interesting and what what for me really separates what we're talking about here today some of the you know the the key cases that you've talked about there dave and that kind of thing and what separates all of that from the you know the, the more kind of wild theories and things that you can find on infotainment documentaries and so on is that there actually is actual scientific data that we can point to that really starts to make it clear that there were advancements in tech long before it's currently believed to have been possible. Um, and obviously that that evidence varies depending on which site you're talking about from around the world and how much work has been able to have been done and, and has anybody had the, the resource and the time to do that work and so on. But the couple that I'm about to mention for me are, are very, very good examples of this. Um, you know, we can all say, look at a, a statue and look at the incredible, uh, you know, symmetry in the face of this statue in ancient Egypt. But, you know, have people actually gone and done the work of scanning that in and taking measurements and proving that it is remarkable? Well, actually, yes, that that work has been done in a lot of cases. And I don't think people realize that uh, because that information is not necessarily the first thing you come across when you start looking on, online for it. Um a lot of people put off by the stigma and never really scratched the surface to find the really compelling, interesting stuff. Now, for what I'm about to talk about, I won't go into any you know hypotheses as to how these things were created. There's a lot of very, very interesting ideas that we were discussing just now. Um, but what absolutely can be, be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt is that there are a growing number of objects which have been analysed and shown to be amazingly like amazingly accurate and the most compelling ones uh that i'm going to touch on uh now um for me are kind of separate um to some of the the really intriguing artifacts and and, and megaliths around the world that have not been investigated or have been investigated a bit uh, these ones represent the cases where I, I find the information to be just absolutely astonishing and you know there actually is that that elusive thing that we look for in the, in the UFO topic, which is, you know, I, I wish we could have this level of cold, hard scientific fact and data uh, to do with UFO cases, but it's obviously a lot more elusive um, in that in that regard. Um, but the first one is uh, Gunan Padang, which is uh, an, an archaeological site um, located in West Java, uh, Indonesia. Um, it's located at 885 meters above sea level, which is about approximately 3,000 feet for any uh, US listeners. I believe you use feet for those kind of measurements. Uh, and it basically covers a hill, which is essentially a, a an extinct volcano. It's like a series of, of terraces, uh, which are, have got like retaining walls made of stone. Um, and there's a, a long staircase of, of steps uh, that, that rises up through the site. Um, and it's also covered with huge hexagonal stone columns, um, which are, uh, are believed to be of, of volcanic origin. Um, but the actual overall site itself, there are various theories and things as to how exactly uh, that was put together and when. Um, the actual the people of, of the area consider the site to be like a sacred site um, and believe like kind of in, in a mythology, a mythological story that it was the result of uh, King Silawangi's attempt to build a palace in one night. Um, safe to say um, 
fairly unlikely that that was the actual origin story of the site, but um, well, I suppose we, we never know what Silowangi was able to do. So, <laughs> um, but but in in uh, and here we come to another difficult name to say. In October 2023, and I did touch on this actually in, in the podcast as well, so folks might remember me talking about this. Um, it was actually a, a paper by uh, Natawijaja uh, et al., uh, which was published in Archaeological uh, Prospection. And um, that that particular study, this paper, claimed that Gunung Padang is actually the oldest pyramid in the world uh, which actually dates back as far as 27,000 years ago. Um, uh, Nata Wijaja and his team argue that their use of uh, ground-penetrating radar shows that below the main building itself, there are actually several deeper man-made layers, um, with the, the lowest of those layers, obviously, the lowest would also be the oldest because the, the idea is that this may have been built on top of and on top of again um, over, over the years. Um, the very the very lowest layer is actually a hardened lava core uh, because, of course, it is a, an extinct uh, volcano. But this apparently, according to the ground penetrating radar, shows that, that, that it's been actually sculpted. Now, it's very, very interesting, and this is one of the sites that, uh, Graham Hancock visits when he does his um, his Netflix series Ancient Apocalypse, and I remember thinking when I watched the the show that it was fascinating. Of course, this study only came out in October 2023, so quite a while after Hancock series. Uh, presumably, Hancock would have shot that series, you know, long before it came out as well. So by the time the paper came out. It must have been very interesting for Hancock to to see the the actual work that was done on on the site that he that he of course went to in the documentary. I, I have to say uh, it's worth mentioning that the the findings of this paper are perhaps unsurprisingly disputed by many in archaeology. It's not completely universally accepted, and some of this pushback has actually led to an investigation in, into the paper as well. Um, on the other hand. The various kind of quite prominent skeptics who had, had had long-standing battles and debates with with Hancock, um, you know, quite in my opinion, quite admirably accepted the conclusions of the paper and actually made statements that you know perhaps Graham Hancock's work on on this and other sites should be taken a bit more seriously and should be looked into uh, a sort of a glimmer of hope in terms of the you know the um, the accepted standard of things being a certain way perhaps breaking down and. and interesting questions being able to be asked but i think whatever the outcome of of this uh investigation into that that paper that was written the kind of common ground for me here is that um you know what we all should want is proper investigation and in this case an investigation took place people question it you know and you know, at the end of the day, the the question of that investigation is that dogmatic thinking, is it gatekeeping, or are the concerns about that particular investigation and paper on solid ground? Well, for me, the answer to that is to study the area more. You know, if they if people want to prove otherwise, go and do your own study. And that's a that's a great thing because that means people are actually looking into these sites and trying to get some work done. And obviously the massive splash that, that particular story made when it came out is is in my opinion a good thing to get people excited about this kind of work and and will hopefully have a, a knock-on effect to you know the next really important area um which could well be the one i'm about to go into which for me is kind of 
taking it full circle to uh, ancient aliens, which does largely focus on things from, uh, of course, Egypt. Um, now, this isn't actually anything to do with ancient aliens, but it is about um, specifically about some Egyptian uh, artifacts, objects, which are absolutely fascinating. And this goes back to um, the work of Ben from Uncharted X again. And I'll leave a link to the particular video uh uh, about the analysis of these objects as well, uh, because you, you, you've you got to see, if you're finding this interesting and you've listened to this point in the show you, and you've not seen this video, uh, just pause the show and go and watch it because <laughs> it's, it's super, super interesting. Uh, or watch it later or whatever you want to do. Just make sure you watch it. But Ben uh, is is doing brilliant work on all of this. Um, he actually runs trips, actually, to go out to Egypt as well, I think, like once a year um, with, with him and a bunch of other researchers. And I would absolutely love to go on one of those one day. Uh, it's a pretty penny, so it's certainly not something I've uh, got on the cards anytime soon. But he's doing brilliant work, and uh, he himself is inspired by the work of, of Christopher Dunn as well, who's a, a long-standing researcher into some of these objects and with an engineering background. Um, and, you know, people might be thinking, if you're not familiar with Ben from Uncharted X and you've not seen his videos, like, you know, the guy who's doing this is a YouTube personality, that kind of thing. But bear with me. Let's not get, you know, preconceptions get in the way of, of the work actually being done. That's the important thing. And I mentioned Chris Dunn. If we look at Chris Dunn's background, Christopher Dunn has uh, an extensive background as a craftsman uh, who actually started his career as a, uh, an indentured apprentice in his hometown of Manchester, England, which I only found that out when I was putting the notes of this together, Dave. Did you know that Chris Dunn I was did. from Manchester? I did, because I listened to a big long... I've followed him for years, Chris Dunn. Well, I listened to a big long interview today days ago on news from Manchester, and he went to American and teens and that he did after his apprenticeship. Yeah, so I did know that, but yeah. That's why his yeah, accent's that's... a bit weird if you listen to him. He's American in English. Yeah, I could never really place his accent, but I'd never expected him to be from Manchester. Listeners might not know, um, myself and Dave are from Manchester. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose Chris Dunn is one of our brethren. Um, but, yeah, he was recruited by... Um, an aerospace manufacturing company, and he actually immigrated to the States in 1969. So obviously he's lived there a long, long time, um, for 49 years, in fact. So obviously his accent has, is not the typical Mancunian that you might hear from myself <laughs> or Dave, um, but he certainly is uh, Manchester uh, at heart, I would like to think. And uh, Chris has, has worked um, at all different levels of, of really high-tech manufacturing. He's been a machinist, a toolmaker, a programmer, an operator of high-power industrial lasers, project engineer, and a laser operations manager. And for the last 16 years, he's been a human resource director for a Midwest aerospace manufacturer. And going back to Ben, he's got, um, like I say, very, very well-researched, very detailed series of videos on YouTube about some of this ancient precision on showing these uh, objects from ancient Egypt and also from various other sites around the world. He's, in my opinion, he's kind of taken the ideas from people like Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson, um, who we've mentioned earlier, and, and made really thorough, watchable, very important, documentary-style videos that weigh all of this up. Mm. And what I like, similar to what I was mentioning earlier, is that he doesn't actually point to a speculative idea as to how all of this was done. He just seeks to prove that it was done. 
and then you know setting out to prove the characteristics of the objects themselves and that's why i find it so fascinating it kind of puts the ball in the core of those who should be looking into it kind of like saying you know i don't know why these objects are like this or how but they are and that doesn't fit with you know the current explanation so what are you so-called experts gonna do about it you know because it quite clearly is the case so getting to the actual um sort of nitty gritty uh, of the objects so we've all heard rumors about objects from egypt defying explanation in terms of precision and that kind of thing um there's some in-depth studies that have been done into the perfect geometry of some of these statues as i kind of alluded to earlier the facial structures and some mystery around the precision of um, particularly some of the 100 ton granite boxes in in the serapium and obviously some of the actual structures the pyramids themselves and things like that there's question marks as to how it was all done particularly the bigger objects the bigger stones as part of those structures and you know these huge objects don't really fit with any of the theories of how these objects were moved every now and again somebody pops up claiming to have cracked it at how you know the the egyptians moved these big blocks around and those theories actually are quite effective and they do work when you're talking about smaller objects but anything over a certain size it just doesn't work and there's no actual good explanation at this point as to how some of the largest blocks were moved and manipulated but what i'm actually going to talk about here is some stone vases or vases depending on your pronunciation um of that one and there's a few of these um these these vases that have been recently subject to an in-depth analysis by a team headed up uh, by ben from uncharted x and actually overseen by chris dunn who i mentioned earlier and um like i say video for this particular uh, the link for this particular video in the description so definitely check it out it's truly amazing and I, and I don't use that word very often i don't use it lightly it's amazing it really is to see that kind of analysis um you know it, it seems like irrefutable proof of the incredible accuracy of these these objects and you know how how accurate are these are these vases then and and you know how are they supposedly made um we've talked about these you know accepted uh, timelines of things within mainstream archaeology and whatnot well the current accepted thinking according to mainstream archaeology is that they were made by hand using essentially copper hand tools that's the estimation of uh, of what methods were available just pounding stones grinding stones and and basic copper tools everything done by hand uh, and apparently that's the estimation of what was available to the ancient, ancient egyptians at the time that these objects originate from speaking of which the the provenance of these actual objects as well um obviously is very important and is essentially impeccable they've got a long documented history going back hundreds of years um all the way back to the the original paper documents of when the the objects were purchased by somebody uh, in the 1800s um which basically was a time when a lot of these objects were being dug up um you know from from egypt and kind of sold around the world as, as keepsakes i don't think the the true you know value of these objects was really understood at that point they just considered they were digging up these you know vases out of out of the sand and like you know it's not that big of a deal so there a lot of uh, tourists from around the world particularly wealthy explorers would go there and buy these objects and then they would stay in the families for generations and some of these objects are now uh, actually becoming available 
uh, to researchers. So the, one of the really interesting things about all of this is that the entire project of analyzing these objects has been done open source as well. Very important in my opinion. So there's nothing being hidden. The actual scans of the objects has had the complete data sets provided online so anyone can go ahead, download the data and actually do their own analysis. Um, going back to what I was saying about Gun and Padang, um, in this case, if you disagree with the analysis that's, that's been done, um, you can download the data, do your own thing with it. And what the analysis actually consisted of is taking these vases to a precision facility in Illinois uh, and it's a facility that's got precision equipment to measure distances down to a thousandth of an inch. I mean, even the setting up of this facility is is, is like a marvel in itself. They have like a, a little measuring probe that's placed on a perfectly smooth and flat slab of granite, which has been precision made for the specific purpose. If you run this particular probe over a piece of wood, for example, the needle on the display would be jumping around all over the place. Even running it over a piece of slate, which feels very flat to the touch, the needle would pick up on the tiniest surface imperfections. And as a demonstration in this particular video, they run the probe over the granite slab to show that it's perfectly flat and the needle just does not move. It's, it's the flattest uh, level surface you could, you know, that's possible to create essentially. And then they, they place a single hair fresh from the head and, uh, and then run the probe over the hair. And you can see that that single human hair registers as two thousandth of an inch. So that right there is kind of a benchmark. That for me was really quite amazing to see how accurate these machines. I mean, just from the, the analysis, the machinery itself, it's amazing that we can even do that, uh, measure something that small. And just, just imagine for a second how difficult it would be to carve out a granite object using hand tools in general and then consider how difficult it would be to do that very, very precisely. So that's what this object, these vases were made from, granite. Now, granite is a pretty hard material. I think we all accept that. We all know that. But it's actually measured using something called the Mohs scale. And slate, obviously not particularly hard. You can you can smash slate with your bare hands pretty much. Is like two, uh, two point five to four, depending on tougher types of slate. Marble is about three to four on the scale. Limestone is is three to four. Uh, and then when you get to granite, you're talking about six to seven for the for the toughest you know uh, types of granite. Bearing in mind a diamond is 10, which is widely accepted as, as the hardest naturally occurring um, material in, in the world. So granite is right up there, and that's why people like to have granite for you know things that, that need to be tough, uh, like kitchen worktops and things like that. It, it's a very, very tough uh, material indeed. Not easy to make uh, objects from, and if you wanted an easy life, you would certainly choose a different type of material that would be easier to work. And then the actual analysis consisted of these objects being placed on a rotating precision plate and various probes that I was talking about earlier that they ran over the hair um, kind of placed onto the object to, to um, contact, make contact with it at various positions. And then the object itself rotated um, on like a rotating base that then allows you to see uh, fluctuations as the object turns around. And honestly, to see it in real time on video is genuinely mind-blowing. You see 
the variation of as little as one or two thousandths of an inch. Uh, and in some cases, you know, uh, slightly less accurate of several thousandths of an inch. Bearing in mind that hair I talked about earlier was two thousandths of an inch. And we're talking about a, a vase that's perfectly round within one or two thousandths of an inch. In some places, they're actually in disbelief as they see that the needle just doesn't move. Um, and even when it does move in the relatively inaccurate uh, parts of these objects, um, it's still only a few thousands of an inch. I mean, that's if the inaccurate bits are a couple of human hairs off, you know, that just shows how incredibly accurate these these objects are. And for context, um, modern car engines are made by computer-guided precision engineering, uh, usually to strict tolerances of around 20 thousandths of an inch. And the absolutely critical parts of the engine that are, you know, have to be you know, the most accurate they can possibly be for smooth running and you know, precision engine components, those are manufactured to about three to fifteen thousandths of an inch. You know, so essentially, in some cases, not even as accurate as these objects that we're talking about from, from ancient Egypt. And something I've heard people say a lot is that we can't even make these levels of precision today. And that actually isn't true. We can, we definitely can, but that is with precision computer controlled manufacturing for aerospace and, and for spacecraft and things like that. The types of machines that cost tens of millions of pounds, uh, probably more, uh, you know, even, even precision engineering for car engines is, is, you know, not even quite as accurate as some of these, these vases from ancient Egypt. And the point is though, we can manufacture things to these kind of accuracies, but how on earth was that being done with supposedly copper hand tools thousands of years before computers were invented? I mean, it, it's, it's looking pretty far-fetched that that's actually how they did it. You know, it's even if, for example, someone made it the life's work to create something from a granite block, Okay, and turned it into one of these super accurate vases, and and got it to the point where it was a real marvel of of hand craftsmanship. How would they even measure it down to the levels of precision needed to get it to be this accurate? It just doesn't make sense. I mean, the human eye can't tell that level of detail. Your sense of touch won't even pick it up. You know, not only that, but there are quite a lot of these vases that exist, not just one or two. You know, there's there's actually potentially hundreds and hundreds of them all around the world many of them are in hands of private collectors uh, but now you know more uh, uh, you know these collectors are becoming aware of the work being done and allowing their objects to be loaned out to researchers to undergo the testing um and as as with ufos the more the stigma of this breaks down hopefully the more we can get into the actual information that we want um but i mean you know i i kind of hate typing in you know, ancient Egyptian objects into YouTube and you get that long list of nonsense, little green men in the thumbnails and stuff. All I want really is for these fascinating objects to be properly looked at by real experts, um, you know, proper analysis being done using proper equipment and the results published. And that is exactly what we're seeing with this work being done. And it's 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 truly mind-blowing. 
and I really look forward to seeing uh, where all of this uh, work goes and how it ties in with some of the other advances uh, that we're seeing as well with some of these kind of new frontiers. So there we go. I know that was a bit lengthy there, Dave. I, I went uh, kind of off on one there, but um, obviously quite an important area and it's it's pretty fascinating, eh? Well, I think, Frank, I think those vases on their own, forget about everything else we've talked about, that absolute smoking gun for advanced technology and machinery. And the guy who did it, the expert from wherever the aerospace company, reckoned it could only be done on a computer-controlled label machine. That's the only way we could do it. So I think that absolute smoking gun and the level of what Ben's done with those colleagues and those machines, I forget about everything else I've been saying, that on its own. If you can't answer that, then you've got to you've got to sort of start asking some serious questions. They were well before Old Kingdom, so they're at least 6,000 years old, probably old. There's loads of underneath the pyramid of Dozer, and it looks like they were mass-produced, but they were easy to do for those guy people. And some of the mathematics and stuff inside. Anyway, it's amazing, Frank. So I think that's great. Uh, I think Ganampananga, was it about 25,000 years old? Or 20,000 years old, as they say, between 20 and 14. It was old. It was that, that, the age of that is a mind-blower as well, I think. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think both those examples were fantastic that you, that you mentioned. So, uh, should we just should we wrap it up now? I'm sure people are probably getting to the end of their concentration levels now. But uh, Yeah, well, I, I think if we if we go any longer, I'll be an ancient yeah. technology myself, I think, by the time <laughs> we finish it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, we've, probably, we've probably said enough for, for the time being. But as we've said, I think, you know, to sort of conclude a little bit, there's a lot of interesting similarities with with, with this. Um, the stigma, the fact that it's kind of that stigma is actually gradually breaking down, and we're starting to see, you know, some some kind of you know improvement in in that regard. And and I think there genuinely is a lot of interest amongst the wider public about these things as well. Um, and you know, it, it it's a case of how they're going to progress on kind of parallel tracks. Like as as we find out more about what's out there in the universe, we're also finding out more about um, what we came from in the past. You know what I mean? What led us to this point where we actually can even start to think about what else is out there. And it's also at the same time, all of these various, you know, studies and all the work that's been done into the nature of the universe itself and reality. And there's some very interesting kind of crossovers there. And just to take it back as well, I mean, it's like, I think uh, we'd spoke about this a little while ago, that sometimes a lot of, you know, I, I use the example of I went I went to a, a, a place for, for a day out with my family and, and we saw a guy with a, like a trolley who was like a megaphone in the street and he had a trolley. And this guy had every single um, kind of like conspiracy type of, you know, theory and that kind of thing um, listed on his trolley. And I'm talking like, you know, chemtrails, the earth's flat, you know, all, all the kind of any, anything you can possibly think of, he had it on his trolley. And, you know, I, I'm certainly not going down those kind of paths because um, I think there's a lot of those kind of out there conspiracies um, are, are not really worth worth delving into. And I, I believe me, I've delved. You know, I'm always up for an interesting kind of out there theory and I certainly <laughs> have looked into a lot of them. Um, but when it comes to s s not, not all of these things are created equal and I think, you know, there's not always, you know, it's not always the case that where the smoke does fire. But I think when it comes to UFOs, 
when you really scratch beneath the surface and start to dig into some of this interesting work that's been done over the years, there's really quite a lot more to it than meets the eye. Um, and you just have to know where to look. And, and I think it's kind of a similar thing with, uh, with, with, with these ancient civilizations as well. Um, I don't think the Earth's flat. Um, I don't think chemtrails are a thing. But as I say, you know, these, these particular topics I think are fascinating and definitely worth exploring. Yeah, I mean, I think we've gone through a load of stuff tonight, Frank, a load of stuff for people, and we've tried to sort of uh, cram a lot in there. So, and uh, again, there's loads of stuff there. So I've just, and we've just tried to give people a taste of it, really. And there's a lot of stuff too, a lot of what we've been saying, there's just lots of years of work to have done on some things. But I think my hope, actually, is that, that funnily enough, the UOP subject, there might be some revelations in that subject that might, help us with the ancient Sib stuff and some revelations there. So I, or it might even open mainstream thinking. So I think, I think that's an interesting one to do, but I think fundamentally the thing about this is whether it's connected or not, is it that I think there's a different kind of science or potentially a different kind of scientific thinking that was wholly different, but we don't recognize today, maybe in ancient times. And that may give us clues to some of the UAP tech and the thinking. And it also might mean we had a much more sophisticated relationship with these others over a long period of time. And I think it's quite fascinating to think about. And what I would say to people, if they want to think about some of the powers, or not some of the tech that the people might have had in the ancient time, think about slide nine and some of those things. They could very well have had that sort of thing or, or partial those things in those times and think how much different the tech would be there. So I think it's worth thinking about First, keeping around and some of the ancient ideas that people laughed at in terms of science are now coming around in quantum physics and all the rest of it. So it's all quite an interesting melting pot at the moment. It may well be that the UAP subject unlocks some of these areas as well. And so I think it's always worth bearing it in mind. So I think it's, I hope people have found it interesting anyway. Uh, absolutely, Dave. Yeah, spot on. And you know what's interesting? If now you mentioned slide nine, it, it has the the famous line on there. What was once phenomena is now quantum physics, and wouldn't it be interesting uh, if if it was previously quantum physics, maybe under a different name, maybe some other accepted type of science, and then it became seen as phenomena, and now it's actually starting to become seen as a legit science again. Yeah, brilliant, uh, and, you know, linked with the quantum physics. So um, I don't think I can top that. So on that uh, on that bombshell, really? we'll leave it there. <laughs> so, okay. All right, man. Pleasure as always. Yeah, see you soon, man. Bye. UFO Thinker Podcast.